There are a lot of people who do SciComm who kind of like, you know, I'm just going to go out there and argue with people online, but they don't think about it as a discipline, as being a practitioner and getting that minor and studying with the, the people there in life science communication has really helped me think about talking about controversial topics in science a lot more carefully and better. Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. I'm your host, Madison Sankovitz. I'm an entomology PhD student at University of California, Riverside. And today I'm talking with one of my friends, Carl Haro von Mogel. He's a postdoc here at UCR and he's studying botany and plant sciences. He's also the director of science and media at Biology Fortified. Carl and I work together on some citrus science communication projects, and it's been really fun to get to know him over the years. He also has helped to get this podcast running in the first place about a year ago, and his expertise in podcasting, and he used to have his own radio show. It was all very, very helpful at the beginning. Uh, so I'm really excited to be talking to you today, Carl. Welcome. Hi, Madison. It's great to be here. So I, I got to help the uh, the SciComm Club uh, get started with podcasting, and now all of a sudden you want to know what I have to say. This is very weird. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're like, wait a second, we should get him on here and hear all of his expertise because you actually have a lot of stuff going on with not only science communication, but science and your experience over the years and various fields, actually. So yeah, I'm super excited to be talking to my fascinating friend. So yeah. Carl, you're a SciComm practitioner and you got a PhD in plant genetics with a minor in SciComm. So how do you integrate these two fields in your work? And also, I didn't know SciComm degrees even existed. And if I had known that back in the day, I definitely would have gone into that for grad school. I definitely didn't know I was that into SciComm, but yeah, it's it's super cool to hear that those degree programs even exist. So are those common and how have you integrated that with plant genetics? Yeah, well, let me let me go back a little farther back when I was uh, studying genetics at UC Davis um, in the early 2000s. I was uh, a part of the chemistry club and I eventually became president of the chemistry club, but I was sending all these goofy emails every week to everybody saying, you know, oh, here's the stuff from this, this, you know, meeting. And then uh, here's the chemical of the week. I decided I'll just grab a chemical name and just say something silly about it. And then they, everybody just started to get entertained by this. And uh, then they encouraged me, hey, you should write for the school paper. 
So I tried uh, applying to write for the school paper and they're like, well, you want to write about science, but we don't really need a science columnist. I'm like, yeah, you do. There's people saying terrible things about global warming, you know, in political columns, you need a scientist in there. And then they're like, wait, actually, yeah, we do. And so I just kind of started this process of, of, of studying science, doing science, and then also talking about it. And I, you mentioned I had a radio show. There was a little light bulb wattage community station that started up in Davis. And I started a show called the inoculated mind on there. And uh, it was pretty much just me for an hour. And then even sometimes an hour and a half, just reading news, interviewing people. Sometimes I got a, a weirdo on there, like one of those, you know, founders of creationism movements and, and uh, played disco music to make fun of them as well. It, it, it was a, it was a good time, but at the same time, like sometimes these amazing things happen where uh, a whale researcher uh, I heard about his research on whale sounds and songs and stuff, invited him, in, invited him on. He had a whole CD full of, all these different sounds. And all of a sudden I wasn't even the host anymore. I was now the, uh, the, the, the manager of the program, just making sure we can squeeze all of these tracks in there. Uh, so everybody can hear all these really cool sounds. Like when whales are um, like humpback whales are, are, are putting bubbles around fish to the capture them and stuff like that. And, and other communications they do. So when it came time for what was I going to do after this, I'm like, well, I, I really got into plants. I really wanted to study plant genetics and work on crops. But at the same time, I was bitten by this bug of talking about science. And so uh, when I applied to grad schools, I was trying to find places that I could maybe do both. And so that led uh, me to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so I went to UW-Madison. I got my PhD in plant breeding and plant genetics there. But... Uh, they had a journalism and mass communication program that interested me. And I was trying to figure out how can I um, add this in? But of course, uh, as, as you may know from grad school, your advisor's like, you got to stay in the lab. You got to be working hard on your research. You know, all this other stuff, this isn't going to help you get a job in this field, you know? So uh, not that your advisor said this, I'm just... Uh, um, uh, talking about, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's common. I hear it from a lot uh, who have interest in science communication. So it turns out there is a life science communication program and, and department at UW-Madison. And I got to know the people who were running the program and I started to take a couple of classes, squeeze them in. And then, because uh, I, I learned that there was a science, life science communication PhD minor program. And so that was just a small number of classes and I started taking them toward it. Uh, but then it, at the time, it seemed like the, the program wasn't finalized by the university, like they were expecting it to be. And then it came time for my, uh, my uh, oral qualifying exam. And when you take that in grad school, you're done with classes. So I was like, wait, but I have to take this exam. And when I take it, I can't take a class, but I need to wait for the minor to be finalized. And well, long story short, I took my quals and then uh, then they discovered, oh wait, the minor program was finalized. So I got a vice president at the university to sign off on me taking one class after my, my, my exam to do that. And so it was, uh, I ended up being their first one through the PhD minor uh, uh, program. Wow. <laughs> I think it was because I was so persistent of, you know, <laughs> Uh, and I didn't know I was going to be able to do it, but it, what it really helped me do is help me think about science communication, not as just like, I'm going to go out there and talk about it, but like, think about it like you would an experiment. I have goals. Who do I want to reach? What is the way to reach them? And then even thinking about communication efforts as experiments, as efforts to try to see, will this reach people? And newspapers, online uh, uh, news sources especially do this all the time where they, uh, the, they'll have different titles and such and for the same piece. And then they'll study which titles get the most clicks. Unfortunately, that has led to you know, what we all know is clickbait. So <laughs> every story has a catchy title that doesn't really contain what's <laughs> tell you what's in there. But it's helped me think about science communication uh, as something that you can think about and plan and study and study uh, uh, not only appreciate, but also study 
how people think about topics like biotechnology. And so as I'm working in plant biotechnology, that's really important. I also appreciate how you call it, uh, you, you mentioned that I'm a SciComm practitioner and that's that, uh, that sounds like you also understand the difference between, you know, being a practitioner and a, and a researcher of a topic. And uh, there are a lot of people who do SciComm who kind of like, you know, I'm just going to go out there and argue with people online. And, but they don't think about it as a discipline, as, uh, as being a practitioner and, and getting that, um, getting that, uh, that minor and uh, studying with the, the people there in life science communication has really helped me think about talking about controversial topics in science a lot uh, more carefully and better. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool program. I'm definitely jealous of that. And, you know, your persistence paid off in being able to graduate with that degree. I think that that's really cool that you're the first one ever. That's why, that's why they pay me the big bucks as a postdoc. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I find that interesting that back in the day, the student newspaper didn't think that there should be a science columnist. Is that just because they were like, Oh, they have, people aren't interested in science or because uh, they already had someone. They had their format. Um, they actually, at the time, um, they really wanted to start up a science page. Um, they There were some efforts uh, uh, among the editors to try to get more science-focused uh, articles, especially because there's so much going on at UC Davis that they're like, well, you know, we really want articles to be in here. And so I approached them at the time that they were planning on starting up a page. And so their thoughts were just about just articles and a column is opinion. And so I was approaching them saying, I want to do science opinions. And they're like, whoa, whoa we, we don't even have like science articles going yet. And then a, a little while later, they went, wait a second, if we had a whole science page, and we can have a columnist on the on the side giving opinions about topics related to this. And then we can have big articles and stuff in the middle. And we're like, yeah, actually, this would work. And uh, so, yeah, I, I um, uh, had some fun uh, toying around with some ideas. And um, uh, it, uh, it was a really good experience to be able to do that. That sounds super, super fun. So it sounds yeah. like you sort of got interested in SciComm along the way as an undergraduate, how did you mm -hmm. first get interested in botany and plant sciences? You know, when I went to Davis, I had the default biology major of, well, I guess I'm pre-med um, <laughs> because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I figured, well, that's about the only career in biology I know of coming out of high school. I mean, I mean, yeah, I heard of <laughs> biologists and all that. I read plenty of the far side. I know there are entomologists out there, you know, so uh, I, I did a lot of exploring while I was at Davis and I took a few extra classes here and there. I took genetics and society. I figured, well, let me, you know, I'm studying genetics. This is about topics in genetics and and I took that and that one uh, really got me interested in uh, some of the, uh, the things going on in plant biology and plant genetics um, and how they impact society. At the same time, I had been taking a couple of plant biology classes. It was just the intro one, the professor was, oh man, that was actually such a hard class. <laughs> it was one of those classes where when you come out of it, with a B, you're like, oh yeah, I aced that class. It was it was because the exams made you think really, really hard. There were questions like which of which answer best explains why X does Y, and um, there'd be two wrong things. Oh yeah, but you know what? If I'm a professor someday, I'll write questions like this, and and you have to teach people how to answer them. But they are so good because two would be wrong, and then one or two would be right, but one of them is a better explanations. You have to do, you have to make a judgment there and learning how to answer those questions and learning how to think that way. I came out of that going, wow, I, I know, I think I know a lot about plants and I really like this. Um, <laughs> and, and the questions that that professor would ask and, and all that. So I, I enjoyed that. There were some things that, you know, I, I wasn't as good in taxonomy, but I really enjoyed uh, learning about how plants, you know, they can't go anywhere. So they have to do everything they need to do right where they are. 
unless they're a floating plant, in which case they're going to go everywhere, but they can't really control that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, you know, as, as I thought about these two things together, uh, that I was interested in plant genetics and I was interested in science communication, I realized that uh, before I went to grad school, that uh, there would be, shall we say, fertile ground uh, in, in talking about plant biotechnology. Because, uh, I mean, when, uh, when I first got to Davis, there were protests about it. There were, um, uh, actually, I, I, I covered, actually, as an, for, as an article for the, the California Aggie, the student paper, an article where they, uh, um, there was an event where some protesters chained themselves to a big DNA structure in one of the buildings in protest of a project called the Dendrome Project. And they thought it was some dastardly scheme to plant the world over in uh, uh, genetically engineered trees. But it's actually just a genome database, like like GenBank and stuff, and so it's just a repository for for DNA sequences as as researchers are trying to study trees. And so I went and interviewed the the director of that project and and uh, wrote an article about well, here's what this actually was. So I realized that there was uh, something interesting going on. It's not just about misunderstandings about projects; it's about um, it's about the interface between our society and these uh, uh, these technologies. And it's not always simple uh, knowing, uh, you know, what the solution everybody's concerns are. It's not always simple understanding what the impacts are. Let's say you make an apple that uh, uh, doesn't turn brown and, it, and you think well, that's great. You can have non-browning apples in your school lunch. And like, oh yeah, and also that means that the apple juice might be useful in more places. Oh, okay, that's cool. Wait, oh wait, apple juice is kind of everywhere, and there's it's you know there's so many mixed juices out there with just full of apple juice, and well, it's just another source of sugar. And like, is it better that it's making it could make apple juice go farther? Mm. I don't know. That's 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 not the easiest question to answer. Um, I, I think there are some people who are. Uh, critical of plant biotechnology who only talk about the bad, but there's also some people who only talk about the good and won't even consider that, well, maybe, maybe there is some little small negative impact from this over here or that over there and things we might be, not be able to foresee. So uh, uh, that's why uh, learning about social science in my PhD minor really helped me think about uh, those kinds of concerns. Absolutely. And it sounds like you really took advantage of opportunities to go beyond the basic knowledge that you were learning in class and uh, apply that knowledge and see how it was working in the real world. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's really sort of at the foundation of what science communication really is. It's looking at science and being like, okay, people need to understand how this is playing out in our world today. Otherwise there wouldn't be any need to really communicate about what's going on in the lab. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. So what is the focus of your postdoc research right now? Yeah. So I am working on citrus genome editing. So, uh, for, so genome editing, for those who aren't familiar, the idea is you want to go in and use some enzymes to cut the DNA inside of a living cell and then make small changes to it. When you think about uh, plant breeding, you imagine crossing two different plants together and you get some combination of the genes. You got to check afterwards to see what uh, different combinations you get. When you think about plant biotechnology, what mo most of the examples you've heard of, uh, including, you know, I mentioned non-browning apple a moment ago, uh, that usually involves inserting a gene. You might use something like a gene gun or uh, agrobacterium or a couple other methods to introduce a piece of DNA. Genome editing expands the possibilities of what can happen. You can introduce DNA or you can just put uh, the, the editing system in there and make changes to the DNA, like, a you know, change one letter of the code or remove a gene or a, or a segment of a gene and not introduce any DNA at all. So that's what my project is uh, focusing on is we're trying to address the problem of citrus greening, um, 
devastating disease that has uh, almost destroyed the citrus industry in Florida. It is in California. It's in Southern California. It isn't yet that we know of up in the Central Valley where, all, uh, where most of the citrus is being produced. But uh, uh, there isn't any ready cure for it. There, are, there is a new treatment that uh, is being developed from a relative of citrus. And I know some people who are breeding some citrus varieties with relatives of citrus um, to try to introduce some tolerance to this disease. But if you want to have a sweet orange, a sweet orange is an ancient uh, hybridization and there is essentially one sweet orange genotype. There's all kinds of mutations that happen. You got blood oranges and navel oranges and Valencias and all these different kinds of oranges, but they're all from that one hybridization. So you can't readily cross it like you would uh, other citrus varieties and get a sweet orange uh, as you know it. So what I'm trying to do is uh, take tissues from a sweet orange variety and a lemon and a mandarin and break them down into individual cells called protoplasts that don't have a cell wall. So just a little delicate, very delicate sphere. <laughs> um, and then uh, I try to put in uh, the, the code for, for the genome editing. And then uh, I get edits in the cell and then I regenerate the cells into plants. Turns out the real hard part about this is working with those delicate little protoplasts. So a lot of my work has been focused on tissue culture. I, most of my training has been in molecular biology. So uh, I'm playing, I, 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 I'm most comfortable playing around with DNA and uh, uh, popping DNA from you know, one bacterial cell into another or making copies of it with uh, PCR, things like that. But then now here I have these cells that I have to, to baby along and get to grow back into plants. It, uh, it was going okay. But then we had this pandemic come along mm. and labs shut down. And I had experiments uh, that I had started in January 2020 that I was going, oh, these are starting to work. And all of a sudden, March, it's shutdown time. And I didn't get back into the lab until July. So, yeah, yeah pretty much those were all dead um, <laughs> and, and real slow since then. But at least even though it has been slow since then, um, it has allowed me to uh, think about each one of those uh, culturing experiments because uh, uh, I can't start too many of them. So I have to uh, be a little more careful about which ones I start and then follow them along. And uh, eventually I've been getting them to regrow. And so uh, we're on to uh, the genome editing part while those continue to grow. And so now, um, now we're going to try to see if we can uh, get some edited sweet oranges and, and lemon and perhaps mandarin if the mandarin will decide to grow someday. Uh, but the, uh, th there's challenges. Each variety is different. Um, then, then hopefully we can get some uh, edited citrus that we can then test to see if they are resistant to the disease. So that's the, that's the, the main idea of, uh, of what I'm doing in the lab. That's so cool. Are there other labs across the country that are sort of working on this genome editing solution for citrus greening or is yeah. it your lab? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually this is uh, this is a project that involves university of Florida and um, uh, uh, oh, uh, we got, call it, got colleagues in Texas um, who are also doing this and we're, we're all in the same grant and we, um, uh, we're each doing citrus that is important for the state that we're in. Mm -hmm. So Washington Naval oranges, that's the variety that I'm working on. Uh, that is a, a, a sweet orange that uh, you find in the grocery store. Whereas um, the sweet orange that you uh, might find uh, growing in Florida would be a juice orange. And so they, they're working on the oranges that are grown in Florida. And of course, Texas they have a lot of grapefruits that grow in Texas. So they're, they're working on those there. So um, everybody's working on different varieties and trying to do some of the same edits to each of them simultaneously. That's great. I think there's something uniquely exciting about working on a problem that is a nationwide problem and you can collaborate with all these scientists. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. it's 
a devastating disease for the nation. So that really sucks. But it, you know, it provides this opportunity to sort of work together to try to come up with a solution. And I find that really exciting compared to just working on something in your lab by yourself. (laughs) Yeah, it uh, is exceedingly important for scientists to be able to share information and communicate about these problems. And, you know, we're we're learning, learning stuff along the way. I mean, the one of the first things I did besides starting some tissue cultures, uh, when I got here, um, uh, three years ago is I had to go to the library to get a, uh, scan of a physical book because the paper I needed to start learning how to do these tissue cultures, uh, was, uh, uh, uh was 30 plus years old. And, uh, so you end up going and digging back through old things and then, uh, uh, then kind of going over those experiments and trying them again and then trying modifications. And it's, it's interesting because I remember learning about working with protoplasts as a topic that like, eh, you know, that kind of fell out of favor, but now we're back into working with protoplasts. And the reason why is when you make a, uh, let's say you make a genome edited or a, uh, genetically engineered variety, uh, you'll get the edits or you'll get the genes inserted into some cells, but not necessarily all the cells that you're looking at. So you have to figure out a way to have just the cells that have the change you want. And so you don't have a chimera, you don't have a plant that has some cells with one genetic identity, some cells with other genetic identities. And the problem with citrus is it's uh, propagated by cuttings. So if you have that, it's not like you're going to go through a seed so easily and, and keep the, um, you know, in a seed, it ends up going through a single cell usually. And that's the way that, you know, corn genetic engineers make sure that all the cells are the same. You go through one seed, boom, you're done. But with citrus, it'd be, we're growing a plant from it. And then that's going to get grafted from then on. So we have to make sure that all the cells are the same. So I have to bring it down to a single cell <laughs> at the beginning, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun diving through that stuff and learning from people around the country who were doing work in that 30 years ago um, and, and finding out how we can combine that with some of the newest technologies that we have today to solve this problem. Yeah. Speaking of sharing information and communicating, you founded Biology Fortified, which is a nonprofit with the mission to enhance public <laughs> discussion of biotechnology and other issues in food and agriculture through science-based resources and outreach. So tell us more about the activities that BioFortified is involved with. Yeah, so back when I was in grad school, I was uh, uh, chatting online and the base, the, the below articles, and I start running into some of the same people over and over again. And I ran into a grad student at Iowa State named uh, Anastasia. And uh, then I had a essentially a mentor from UC Davis, Pam Ronald, uh, who had been, who was just coming out with a book about plant biotechnology. And then uh, there was a a blogger named David Tribe, a professor down in Melbourne, Australia, who'd been, who'd been blogging about this topic for a while. And somebody put the idea in my head, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where scientists could come and start talking about this topic and hold conversations? And, and the funny thing is, I, I never figured out who that person was who put that idea in my head. They just kind of sent me a message way back when. But then I was like, well, hey, let's do this. So I, I sent an email to everybody said, hey, what about creating a, a group blog? And so we decided on one called BioFortified. And so it's biofortified.org. And it launched on uh, Halloween in uh, 2008. And so... Uh, a few years later, we incorporated as a tax-exempt nonprofit, and that allowed us to uh, be able to raise more money, um, have it be ta- you know uh, tax deductible for for our donors and such. But uh, we always wanted it to be an independent site, and we wanted it to be a very open-minded site. And so then we we just we started with blogging. That was the first thing, and then. Uh, I started making videos and putting videos up and we got some funding from the American Society of Plant Biologists and we put together the beginnings of a database on, on genetically engineered crops because a lot of people talk about, oh, are they safe or not? We're like, well, there's lots of studies and they'd be like, yeah, where are they? So we 
we're putting together a way for people to see uh, how much there was and what some of the studies said without having to read them all, because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies. And um, so, you know, we, uh, we've taken on some projects. There was uh, uh, myself and a couple of friends started a, a, a protest movement for a couple of years called the March Against Myths. And uh, we did some counter protesting in Chicago and some various other cities. And so that, be that became a project of Biofortified. And, and uh, then um, uh, Anastasia and some of uh, uh, her, her colleagues started a group called the Psy Moms. And that was another one of our projects just kind of going under the umbrella, under the wing. And they've been doing a lot of science-based guides for parents. Uh, things like, you know, there'd be stuff in the news, you know, like, our, you know, what's the, what's the deal with vaccines and what's, you know, because uh, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of anti-vax sentiment, especially uh, with, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, that's just been coming up in the forefront. And new groups of people who never were vaccine hesitant or anti-vax. So, you know, they have guides about that there um, with the, with the Simoms. And uh, yeah, and there's, we have a, we have a plushy mascot. We have a, uh, uh, a, a plushy that is an ear of corn and his name is Frank N. Food, your friendly neighborhood genetically modified organism. And uh, I, I pranked some of our readers years back claiming that we, you know, we're getting them manufactured and Toys R Us had picked them up and all that, you know, back when Toys R Us existed. And um, then uh, uh, I think it was Toys R Us I was playing around with. I, yeah, I think it was that. Yeah. So, and, and then, and then everybody's like, well, why'd you prank us? We want one. So we did a Kickstarter and we, uh, uh, raised money to be able to, to make them. And so people have a plushy uh, uh, mascot from our blog. And, and yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. We've, we've tried uh, all kinds of different, well, science communication experiments. And one of the uh, experiments we did was a literal experiment in people's backyards to see whether or not uh, genetically engineered or non-GE corn uh, was preferred by wild animals and squirrels. And uh, we have uh, one paper out about it that's about the methods and the second one is being worked on. But what I can tell you is um, we learned that squirrels like to eat corn. Definitely <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so a lot of little things. And so the great thing about Biofortified and what we've been doing with that is that in grad school, we weren't able to find very much institutional support for doing science communication. If we wanted to do it, it was in our own time with our own money. And of course, grad students uh, don't have a whole lot of money to work with. So we thought, well, let's start a, an organization to be able to do this. And that has enabled us to be able to do this stuff. I've been really pleased uh, uh, coming here to UC Riverside and seeing the kinds of institutional support there is here. I think it's changing uh, uh, slowly, but it's changing in a lot of places. So there is uh, more support for students to do science communication. And sometimes they get surprised, you know, somebody goes like, oh yeah, we have all this camera equipment you want to borrow. And uh, I'm like, wait, wait, what? All this? I, I can take this? We can use this? You know, so it, <laughs> it you know, it's back in my day though. Um so it's it's really good to see that, and um, uh, but uh, but it also allows us, you know, we have this this organization to kind of do our own thing and not worry about uh, whether it you know meshes with uh, you know what our our employers are doing, and and because everybody can go, yep, that's their separate thing, and they do it in their own time, and that's been really helpful. So yeah, if anybody wants to uh, write for us or do projects, uh, check us out at biofortified.org. Definitely. So the backyard science experiment that you were doing, was that a citizen science thing with the readers of your blog? Yeah. So, and we call this citizen science when we started out. Um, we're, we're trying to call it community science right now because, well, you know, not everybody may be a citizen. And so granted, you could think, well, citizen of Earth, you know, it's just trying to the, give the contrast between the, uh, you know, a, a trained scientist versus somebody who, you know, wants to be involved in science, but hasn't gone through that whole process. So, uh, yeah, so we, we launched that one uh, a few years ago 
And uh, we had a couple of hiccups along the way. Experiments seemed to be going fine, but um, we had to redo some stuff uh, because uh, one of the members of our uh, team uh, needed to uh, uh, leave the team. And so that uh, made us have to redo a bunch of stuff. But at the same time, we got some new collaborators and we started to learn about machine learning because we had all these pictures of ears of corn and you know before and after the squirrels were eating them. And we're like, well, how do we analyze this? And so we hooked up with some people who, uh, some engineers who uh, do machine learning and they created a program to analyze the images. And, and so that's what our first paper is about. And the really cool thing about that is I could imagine somebody creating an app off of that, where if you are a, a, a small landholder uh, in a developing country, or if you are doing participatory breeding, imagine if you had an app where you could take a photo of an ear of corn and then it'll tell you an estimate of how much of that ear is there. So you can walk around the field and sample a few of them and send some photos and, and get some results from that. Like that would be really cool. We never expected that that would be a possibility. Not that we've developed an app, but that this project could uh, enable something like that is really pretty cool. So those absolutely. little twists and turns of science. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool to see yeah, where the start of the blog has taken you to maybe developing an app about something completely different from the blog itself. And I also think that it's cool to hear that people are trying to change the terminology around citizen science. I hadn't heard that before at all. It um, hasn't quite trickled really in cool. yet, but um, yeah, we're we're trying to use the, uh, the term community science. There you um, go. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't know. quite roll off the tongue yet, but we're, we're, we're working on that. Yeah. It does make a lot more sense though. Absolutely. It's funny how we pick up these terms and then we don't even think about their meaning anymore. And it's just so widely used. So there's a lot of that going around, I think in science in general, even in the small little niche ant world that I'm in, because I study ants for my PhD, there's lots of terms about ants that are actually sort of racist and their origins oh, yeah. that we're trying to change along the way. Um, yeah, so I, have an I have an entomologist friend who's also studying weed science now, and he's involved in a group of entomologists who are going through those terms and those species names and identifying them and flagging them and then going, okay, we're going to come up with new ones for these and change it. And some people go, hey, you can't change the scientific term. I'm like, I'm sorry, this, this is the philosophy of science. That uh, uh, that has to do with uh, terminology and definitions. And yes, you can. You know, it's language. You can Absolutely. change language. It doesn't change that, that that insect exists or it's, you know, whatever the feature on its anatomy exists. It's uh, it is mutable what you call it. And, you know, we can we can write those wrongs that uh, previous scientists maybe put in there because they thought it was funny or they themselves uh, thought that they were superior to other people you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. There's really nothing stopping us from changing terminology that is harmful now. So I think it's great that people are purposely going through and doing that systematically. I think that's awesome. So still speaking of SciComm, so I'm looking at you right now in this video that our listeners can't see, unfortunately, but it's very classic Carl because you're wearing a shirt that you made. I'm positive of it just because I know you, but it has <laughs> yep. some lemons on it and there's some blossoms on it. And actually every time I see you, you're wearing an awesome shirt that you've made and actively use for a SciComm. And you're the only person I know personally who really practices this form of SciComm. And I think it's amazing because you have these sewing skills. So tell us about your shirt and tell us about all your shirts and why you do this and how you communicate science through it. Yeah. So back when I was in college, I, I knew how to sew a little bit. Um, I grew up doing a little bit of sewing when I was young, um, but I hadn't really made garments. And I uh, was getting into kind of like, you know, shirts kind of like Hawaiian shirts, but I didn't really like Hawaiian shirts. It just seemed kind of tacky in a way. Um, no offense to anybody who may like them, but 
the I liked shirts that had plants on them. And as I was getting more interested in plants, I'm like, I want to get some more cool shirts like this. So uh, eventually I was like, well, you know, maybe I could just try making one. And I tried making one. It was too big. Um, it had bamboo on it. And um, then I made the smaller version out of a starry pattern. And I'm like, all right, this fits me. And I found a better pattern. And I uh, uh, took on making a shirt that was corn kernels. And I uh, wore it with a green suit um, to an event with Michael Pollan back in, I think it's 2006 in Davis. And I was, I was uh, their student's questioners. And I, I had, I had some questions for him as part of this panel. And so I, I wore a bolo tie with uh, these corn kernels and uh, a green suit. And I had my hair, uh, uh, I had my hair uh, streaked and dyed um, green uh, oh on God. the top. So yeah, it was, yeah, there, there's video footage of it. Um, it, uh, it exists. So it, it was, um, so I was having some fun with that. Right. But then and when I went off to grad school, I made like a couple more shirts, had a P shirt, but you know, it didn't really take off until uh, I guess just a few years ago, I really started, really started to expand it. So, you know, I'd have like four shirts, then I had five and six. And all of a sudden I got a dozen of them. And then uh, I took on the challenge of, Oh, let me make, two at once. Like, oh, that's incredible. Two shirts at once. That's a lot of work. And uh, uh, oh, what I didn't know then. So <laughs> I just kept trying to find interesting prints of different crop plants. And then uh, when I did some of my videos, did interviews or did photos places, like to go on Twitter uh, with our, our blog mascot, Frankenfood, I would try to wear a shirt that was connected to what was going on. And so I've been, I've been using them as, as a tool for two things. One is to get myself out of my shell because I'm a naturally shy person. And, you know, I put on one of these shirts and all of a sudden, woohoo, I'm, I'm the outgoing person. It's not that easy, but, uh, but it still helps. And it's a conversation starter. I'm not sitting somewhere in a wrinkly t-shirt or something. Um, so the other thing I help, uh, I think it helps with is just making science communication more fun for everybody else. And so uh, there's some people online who are like, oh, what's the next shirt Carl's going to make? <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I get I get all these kinds of smiles from some people in my building who, you know, they see me in a new one and they go, like, uh oh, he's just made another one. And um and, and, and so when it came to the pandemic, this is where I was saying, uh, oh, what I didn't know then, um, you know, we're, we're stuck at home uh, during all these shutdowns and I have these piles of fabric and I've got buttons and I've been making uh, masks for, uh, uh, for farm workers and for research. And then at one point I'm like, oh, I need to do something for myself now. And so I decided last fall to do a shirt apocalypse. So my shirt apocalypse was to take the materials uh, uh, of 10 shirts and make 10 shirts in 10 days. I didn't quite get them all done in 10 days, but I got them almost all the way done. And, and uh, most of them were completely finished. And I just turned it into a shirt factory um, in my house. And I just cut all the pieces at once. And I so did all of this step at once and all of that step at once. And yeah, I, my, my feet were hurting standing around cutting and doing all this stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, the, it, it was a whole lot of fun to be able to do them. And now I have uh, uh, 30 shirts and a couple of vests wow. and I'm gearing up for a, a, a second shirt apocalypse later this year. Um, I'm, I'm tentatively calling it shirt apocalypse to the hemming. Shirt. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Epic and absolutely perfect. <laughs> so speaking of sewing during the pandemic, you also have been making fabric masks for people, which is yeah. amazing, but then you've been going a step further and actually doing research on fabric mask efficacy. So Tell us about that project, how that gets started. Yeah, so my boss says this is the strangest project that he's ever um, uh, been involved with, <laughs> probably because he's a plant scientist. And again, you know, like who, who is who is sewing things and then and then doing research on them. 
So what happened at the beginning of the pandemic is uh, some friends of mine started a big sewing group called the Auntie and Uncle Sewing Squad. And I was invited to be a part of it because uh, they knew that I could sew and they were hoping that I would be a, a workhorse and crank out a bunch of masks. So we're all trying to figure out what are we doing and what are the patterns we're using? What are the materials? And and if you remember at the time, if you went in any store that had fabric, it was just disappearing. And you couldn't even get uh, cotton knit fabric. Uh, I managed to find some because there was uh, uh, somebody's uh, mother who had passed away long ago, had bins of fabric stored away in the basement and they were donating it to the mask effort. And then we're like, ah, sweet. Now we have cotton knit. Um, so the, the scientists in me kept nagging at this and going, well, how good do these masks work? You know, two layers of cotton. Do we put flannel in there? What, how well are these actually going to work? How do these different basic designs actually compare? And so I, I was almost like, I don't even know how many I want to make of these unless I know how good they are. Um, you know, the, the, the cost benefit of the, the work and then how much it, uh, how much it helps. It's going to help, but we just didn't know how much. So uh, I got, I got connected to some scientists, um, another university who were studying the materials. And I was like, oh, but I, th I thought they were studying the masks themselves. I'm like, can I send you masks and we could test those? And they're like, oh no, we, we don't have a facility to do that. I'm like, ah, well, do you know of anybody who might be able to? And so they connected me to a couple of people here at UC Riverside and UC Riverside has a chemical and environmental engineering department, and they study pollution. They study aerosols. They study all the air that Los Angeles is sending our direction. So uh, I sent them an email. And then three hours later, uh, a grad student named Candace sends me uh, sends an email back going, yeah, I think we can do this and starts like going, okay, in this paper, they did this and this and that. And uh, yeah, we might be able to do this. And I'm like, okay, okay, how do we start on that? You know, so, so this became a, this became a project and we had to go through approvals processes because um, as, as you experienced, as probably a lot of people did in their different uh, walks of life, you know, when it came to their business or their workplace opening, um, there were a lot of restrictions on what you could and could not do. Can you imagine the fact that, you know, nobody's allowed in the same room together um, at the beginning of the pandemic you want to study masks you're putting on people's faces. Like, how are you going to do this without anybody being able to be in contact with each other? And we were thinking of like plexiglass walls and stuff like that. And uh, eventually we got an automatic setup put together and we got approval to have people put on these masks and breathe in and out of them. And we tried all different combinations, different kinds of uh, basic designs like pleated masks versus a sort of face fitting type. And um, there's a very popular one called a boat mask. Uh, you know, so we want to try these different things. We wanted to see how much do nose wires help, stiff ones and, and loose ones. And does uh, elastic around the ears, how does that compare to elastic around the head? What about all the different filtration layers? What, you know, just so many things. And um, uh, we could talk for an hour about that project. And uh, we're working on the paper and trying to get it out right now. And the, uh, what I can say is that, yeah, um, nose wires definitely help and we can show how much and elastic and ties that, uh, or rather just elastic that goes around the head appears to be better than elastic that goes around the ears. It, it gives you a better fit and, uh, pleated masks. If you can exchange those for maybe a more face fitting mask, that would help some layers like flannel, uh, even cotton batting. Um, that you might use in making a blanket is a really good uh, filter for uh, for what it is. It's kind of the non-woven uh, uh, loose um, material, but the cotton equivalent. Because a lot of uh, uh, a lot of masks, like surgical masks and N95s, are all made from non-woven synthetic material. So it's like the non-woven natural form. But uh, uh, unfortunately, we, we haven't managed to make a, a home-sewn N95, but we've gotten pretty close. One of our better masks on one face got about 92% of particles filtered, and uh, some of our top performing masks outperformed uh, surgical masks and KN95s. And so 
yeah, that that's actually pretty exciting to be like, yeah, this this came out of my sewing machine, and um, uh, that uh, uh, you know this iterative process produced something that somebody could make at home that would still be pretty good and comfortable, and of course fashionable. So I have masks that match my shirts naturally. And uh, so I've been going around campus wearing matching shirt and mask. Uh, Sometimes I go in a fabric store and they go, did you cut up one shirt to make that mask? And I'm like, looking down, there's a pile of fabric in front of me. I'm like, "Uh, where do you you think maybe I might've made them both, you know? (laughs) So, but what, what I, what I learned through this whole process besides a new field is that really when you are trained in science, you have the tools in your head for how to approach virtually any problem scientifically. And you can, you know, go outside your field. And if you learn enough and you start doing the work and doing the research, uh, you can discover new things. You can develop new things. And uh, so, you know, if you study a particular field and you think, gosh, you know, I might want to do something in this other field as well do it, you know, get, get something started because you might find that you could uh, do something uh, that combines them. Um, So, you know, here I am sewing, all of a sudden I'm doing science on sewing and, you know, who knows what could come from that down the road. Absolutely. I mean, you are really sort of a SciComm mentor for me, very much so someone who's inspiring and who I look up to for the vast variety of ways that I can communicate science. And uh, I think you bring a lot of creativity to what you do too. It's not just the same science communication projects everyone has always done. You're really always innovating, I think, what you're doing, which is very inspiring to me. And you make it look easy. So uh, <laughs> has SciComm always been easy for you and just been a, a fun thing that you do or it, has it come with unique challenges? It it hasn't always been easy. It's most of the time been fun. Um, and, uh, you know, even when it comes to speaking in front of a crowd, you know, I get nervous, I get sweaty, but when I get going, I feel better and things go all right. And then afterwards I go, wow, that was great. Okay, now I need to recover. But, um, you know, when talking about plant biotech online, uh, it's a controversial topic. You know, there's everything from big, powerful companies to governments and, um, you know, government news sources like Russian news putting out propaganda like that happens in our field. It's weird. Um, you get people who who troll you, who follow you, who um you know, wish ill upon you. Sometimes you get threats. Um, uh, women colleagues of mine have gotten more particular threats than I've gotten like that. But, you know, we always try to be uh, honest with people and careful. And then when people start being jerks, we just, we don't engage, we block, we, we don't give them the attention they crave. Um, sometimes the harassment can come from uh, people within your field. Uh, without going into this, but I've had, uh, you know, the details, I've had an issue with a former colleague who has been harassing me online and uh, and professionally and uh, putting out libella stuff about me. They're, they're very bitterly hateful of, uh, uh, of me for reasons I care not to go into, but we did the best that we could and we separated ourselves from this person and they continued to persist. And, you know, I, I've had issues going back, you know, through the years in, in grad school and others where I needed help trying to figure out how do I address this problem, you know, communication issue with people, things like that. And one of the things I didn't know about that I've become an advocate for now is the ombuds office. So uh, when I was having uh, additional problems uh, with harassment here at UC Riverside, I learned about the ombuds office and think of the ombuds person as half counselor and half uh, uh, expert on where the levers of power in the university are. So they understand the structure of the university, they understand the resources and the rules, and they can help you figure out uh, what you want or need to do about this problem. And they'll be like, oh, okay, so you should talk to this person here. And, um, you know, let's talk about your goals. What do you want to come out of this? And so uh, I've 
I've talked to the ombudsperson about this a, a couple of times, and it's been extremely helpful. And, you know, I've talked to the ombudsperson at this colleague's institution to help solve the problem over there. It isn't solved. It's still ongoing. But the you know, you're not alone if you're dealing with uh, harassment and stressful issues. And it could be just something as simple as I'm not working well with this person in this lab and I don't know why. And, 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 you know, things aren't quite working right. You could go and talk to them about that and they'll help you figure out, well, what's a way, a professional way to address this. So any students out there, and even, you know, there's companies have ombudspersons. Uh, I first heard of the term because newspapers had them. There were the, a public interface electric go, you know, this something, incorrect was put in this article, you'd contact the ombudsperson and they're going to try to figure out the solution, you know? So, um, uh, so the, the office, you know, has roots in other, other professions as well. So if you're having an issue, find the person who is the ombuds officer or the equivalent, and they can help you. They may not be able to solve your problem. They don't have magic wands but they uh, can help you see inside yourself and understand uh, the context and what you can do about these things. So uh, uh, definitely uh, that's something that I think everybody should know about. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially for new students who don't necessarily know how to navigate sort of the complex world of grad school where you're both a student and an employee and you're working with people at all different levels. It can just be very complicated. Even Expectations for grad students can be very confusing. Um, Yeah, it could be because of those sort of dual roles there. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a regular job. You know, the thesis is a different animal from, you know, going in in the morning and going home at five and, you know, going, well, I'm done now, but no, your mind is going to be running through your project and stressing about it. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've, I know that life very well because my life right now, yeah, it gets gets better. And when it's over, it's such a relief. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. Okay. So I have one last question for you, Carl, and that is what is next? What do you hope to do for your career after your postdoc? If any, or are you just riding the wave and seeing where it takes I you? don't know. No, I kind of do. So, um, you know, we've had some delays from this pandemic and I, uh, had, a, uh, initiated a meeting with my, uh, PI a couple months ago saying, trying to figure out, okay, so we've had all these delays, and, and, and slowdowns and stuff, how can we make sure that this project succeeds? So we're putting together a plan for, for continuing this project. And the, uh, but you know, something's gonna come after that. Certainly if I'm able to develop a, you know, a citrus greening resistant variety, that would be amazing. And, you know, the, I'd love to try to help shuttle that through the regulatory process. And so there might be more work to do there. Um, you know, but perhaps what I've done can be applied to other varieties of citrus, perhaps other crops. So I'm not exactly sure there. Um, my wife and I want to uh, live in a foreign country, perhaps Japan for a year at some point in the future. So I'm like, I wonder if if I could do something in citrus over there for you uh, for a year, you know, maybe uh, make some uh, genome edited yuzus or something like that would be, would be pretty awesome. But you know, we're, so there's some, there's uh, uh, some hopes and dreams and, and possibilities. But uh, uh, yeah, so there's a, a lot of uncertainty there. I wish I could just go, oh, this is exactly what I want, you know, here. But as I think as long as the, the project is interesting, I can do something new and expand with it and, uh, and help people at the other end of it. Yeah. Uh, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah. I think <laughs> especially for people like you who have so many different interests and skills, life usually doesn't work out like that where you just say, Oh, there's this one thing I want. And then you go directly through to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think especially you, whatever you find yourself doing, you're going to excel at it because of the creativity that you bring to everything that you do. So yeah, I'll be. Well, thank you. It it takes, it takes a lot of hard work though. And especially as you um, probably understand doing science and psychom at the same time, it is a time draw. And, um, you know, it, it's, I used to say I had three shifts, I uh, science during the day, 
Then I make dinner when I get home and then it's SciComm at night um, <laughs> until I go to sleep. Um, that slowed down a little bit. I, I value a little bit of just downtime in the evenings more now. But yeah, I always want to be doing science and science communication on into the future. So, you know, I might find myself shifting to doing something more science communication related, you know, later and then kind of shifting back into science. I don't know. Um, so uh, it'll, it'll be an adventure, but uh, ho- uh, hopefully not too stressful a one because not knowing exactly what you're doing next, that can be hard. Yeah, but it'll be an adventure for sure. So, yeah, now I'm trying to trying to plan years ahead. So no, like, okay, what am I doing next month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Carl. It has thank you. Been this was fun. Super fun to hear about all your various projects and your experience so far. So thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Madison. Bye, Carl. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.